The interesting thing is that the timber goes on sequestering carbon from the atmosphere for about two years after construction. So it keeps absorbing that carbon and has another additional net benefit. Welcome everyone to 100 Climate Conversations. Thank you for joining us today. Before we go any further, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the ancestral homelands upon which we meet today, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We respect their elders past, present and future and recognise their continuous connection to country. My name is Padabud and I am delighted to be back here for 100 Climate Conversations. Today is number 55 of 100 conversations happening every Friday. The series presents 100 visionary Australians that are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, climate change. We are recording live today in the boiler hall of the Powerhouse Museum. Before it was home to the museum, it was the Ultimo power station built in 1899. I can see Philip admiring the architecture. <laughs> it supplied coal powered electricity to Sydney's tram system into the 1960s. In the context of this architectural artefact, we shift our focus forward to the innovations of the net zero revolution. Philip Vivian is an architect, urban designer and director of Bates Smart, where he has led the Sydney studio since 1998. Vivian's passion for sustainable urbanism has helped shape Sydney's architecture, transport and public domain, allowing the city's successful development as it grows. We're so thrilled to have you join us today, Philip. Thank you for making the time. Please join me in making him feel very welcome. Let's start off with a really broad question. What power does architecture have to take action on climate? So cities account for 75% of global greenhouse gas emissions. So really, architects are designing cities and cities are responsible for the majority of greenhouse gas emissions. There was actually an internet entrepreneur, a guy called Tony Shee, who once said, if we fix cities, we fix the world, because really they're the emitters. Some other statistics, construction accounts for 39% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the operational energy in buildings alone, 28%. So if we can reduce those things, we're reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And then finally, just cement, alone is 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions. And if cement was a country, it'd be the third biggest emitter in the world. So everything from how we design cities to what materials we use, which architects have an influence on, has an impact on climate change. Wow, incredibly um, startling numbers. So how many people live in cities right now around the world? So I think it's, I think it's 53 or 55%. And that's, that, that's probably that's, a really big jump, right? Because the stats haven't always been that high. So 1900, I think 10% of the world population lived in cities. It's been increasing ever since then. Um, and we are heading in 2050 to about 75% of the global population. I think we're 7 billion now. We're going to 9 billion in the next 25 odd years. So how are we going to accommodate all those extra people in cities and be more sustainable? How did you develop a love for architecture? Tell me how you fell in love with what oh, you do. As a child, I just loved drawing. My godfather was an architect. I, I grew up in Perth and he was quite a prominent architect in Perth. Um, and I spent a lot of time at his house. Um, my father was very sick when I was young, so I used to live with him part time. And he'd take me to building sites. So we'd walk around building sites. 
he was actually, I, I tell you an interesting connection, he designed Perth Council House in the early 60s, uh, which is covered in these gorgeous T-shaped sunshades. It's a stunning building and it's just been heritage listed. But he designed that with his partner and they won the competition while they were working for Bates, Smart & McCutcheon, which is the firm I'm now a partner of. So he moved from Melbourne, from that firm, and they put this building together covered in sunshades. At the same time, Bates Smart in the 50s and 60s was doing buildings that were exploring the use of sunshades on what were previously all glass buildings. Speaking of change, you're currently director of Bates Smart and have been working in the industry for you know, over three decades now. How have considerations around climate change and sustainability evolved in that time? It has really changed. If I go back to the early to late 90s or mid to late 90s, um, we were trying to do buildings as sustainably as we could. We were doing what I'd call in that period green design or sustainable design. So we had passive sunshades on our buildings. We tried to get natural ventilation um, into spaces, particularly lobbies and so forth. Um, we were trying to reduce operational energy. We were trying to say, why have 400 lux everywhere? Why not have 200 lux? and task lighting if you need it, so bring it down. We were talking about, at that point, air conditioning was a very tight thing. It was 22.5 degrees plus or minus one. And we were saying, why not make it plus or minus three degrees? And it's okay to wear slightly more clothes in winter and have a summer dress. So we were talking about these things, but sustainable design in that period was um, trying to be less bad. And accounting for carbon, wasn't a thing. We were just comparing ourselves to business as usual and doing better. I think when the conferences started, and I remember the Kyoto Protocol, which I think was 97 or 98, we became aware that really what we should be focusing on is the impact on climate change. And as we progressed through the early noughties, we started to shift to wondering how we can reduce carbon. And the aim became, how do we become net zero? How do we bring our operational energy down? How do we bring our embodied energy down? And particularly when you come to, say, the, the Paris Agreement to limit global warming to one and a half or two degrees, the whole shift came from not being just less bad, but actually let's get to net zero. We cannot emit either embodied energy or operational energy in our buildings. And so I think that, that to me is the mid period. And that's when we started doing buildings in timber, um, and we'll talk later, I think, about a building that we've done that's all timber, um, but we've also been doing buildings where we've said, let's, let's use timber wherever we can. It might not be all timber, but let's replace traditional steel and concrete with timber in the areas where it has most impact. That's a great segue. From first conception to the completion of a build, what role and responsibility do architects like yourself have when it comes to sustainability outcomes, and you're touching on it there. One of the things is material choice, right? Yes. But that's not the only thing. Yeah, so look, I think we have the most impact at the early stages. Um, there is a graph that shows that as the design progresses, you can have less and less impact. But right at the beginning when you're talking to a client, and in fact, right from the get-go, if you can talk about, let's do something that's sustainable, why don't we try using timber, do we really need to fully air condition this building? Why don't we have areas that are naturally ventilated? Those conversations before the pen even hits paper are absolutely paramount to getting the best outcome. So generally speaking, what sort of response do you get? Are people more conscious now than they were, you know, say five, even five years ago around sustainability? Absolutely. 
Yeah, so we, we often get a warm response. There's, there's a lot more listening. Look, the firm I, I'm a partner of, we do fairly large work. Um, with developers, there's always the question of cost. So what's this going to cost me? Um, we try to flip that on its head and say, you can't afford not to do it because people now want to be in sustainable buildings. So do you want to build a building that might be empty because it's not attracting tenants or people to live in it? It's flipping the narrative, what's it going to cost the environment as opposed to what's well, it going to cost, cost the environment? And it, we also to talk their language. If you just want to build an ordinary building, it could be empty because companies and staff are all looking to live in sustainable buildings. Batesmart was one of the founding signatories for Architects Declare, which I think is a really interesting project. And I would love you to tell us more about Architects Declare and how a group like that can facilitate action on climate. So Architects Declare really started in the UK as a group of architects. And um, it's Architects Declare a Biodiversity and Climate Emergency is the, the full title. Um, and there's, there's started off with 10, there's now 12 principles that we've all signed up for. And what they amount to is effectively helping influence our clients. So I talked about how we talk to our clients up front about how do we do make our building more sustainable, um, use sustainable materials, lower energy use, get the right consultants to talk to our clients about that. And really what this does is embed those principles in a declaration. And we can say to our clients, look, we've committed to architects declare, and if we're gonna work with you, we need you to commit to these principles as well. It's sort of what we always did, but it gives us a little more teeth to say we're now part of, and in Australia, there's a thousand signatories to Architects Declare. I'm not sure how many in the UK, but it just says we're part of this movement. Um, it also commits us to say, if people aren't prepared to go on that journey with us, and they're not interested in doing something sustainable, then it's not a commission that we want to take. So it just puts it front and center of what we do and our commitment. We hope now we can start communicating what is important and what do people need to think about for buildings of the future. Because the thing is, we build a building, um, you know, they are around for a long time, 50, 100 years, it has that impact. And, and if it's got too much embodied carbon, that can never be re-released. Yeah, yeah, and there are ways, I suppose you're getting in from the get-go to prevent that from happening, essentially. Yes. So let's talk about 25 King. In 2018, Bates Smart completed 25 King in Brisbane. It was Australia's tallest engineered timber office, well, it is Australia's tallest engineered timber office building. Can you describe the look and feel of the building to us? Take us, pretend we're all standing together outside across the road, paint a picture for us. Okay, so 25 King, it's 100% what we call CLT, cross-laminated timber building. So everything is timber, even the core is timber, the, and above ground. So below ground is not timber because it's, there's white ants and moisture issues. So above ground, you're looking at a building that is 100% timber. It has a veranda that's raised up on a series of V columns. Now timber doesn't span as far as concrete. So it tends to have a lot of columns and we tend to try and group them together in V's so that there's less columns on the ground floor, but it has this colonnade of V columns that creates a generous veranda colonnade at the entry. 
when you come into the building, it's using natural materials. We're reducing the number of materials. It has a biophilic wall, a green wall, and all the plants are angled towards the light. So you're really feeling like you're in a, a very natural and biophilic environment. Um, and one of the nice things I've noticed is people, you know, in a way that people want to touch timber, people want to touch natural materials. As um, opposed to concrete? As opposed to concrete. Why I is that, do you think? I don't, you never find people rubbing a, a concrete column in an almost friendly way, but if people will walk past a timber column and will just, just rub it. Um, uh, it's an interesting story. I, when I was a student, I used to work in a bakery and the lady who ran the bakery, we had very long queues and sometimes it was all too much for her and she'd just walk out the back and there was this beautiful, big, massive, big fig tree. And she'd just go out the back and hug this tree. And it was too big for her to get around, but she would just hug the tree for a few minutes and be totally revitalised. Well, that's biophilia, right? That's in practice right there, yeah. People feel that need to connect to nature. And it regenerates you. And I think if you're in a, a timber building, that feeling of connection to natural materials and nature is there. And I think it, it's healthier. You feel not like you're in this concrete and plasterboard building, you're in a natural environment. So this is architecture tapping into people's emotion? Absolutely. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Why is it such an important achievement? So the building was designed for Lend-Lease. It was first designed around um, 2012. Um, it's in Fortitude Valley. So it's a, a city fringe office building. It's about 15,000 square metres net. And it sat there for five years, no tenants. And that's because it was simply competing on cost and were they cheaper than the other building nearby. So suddenly the decision was made, let's look at timber. And instantly we got a tenant, a major tenant. It was one of the engineering companies. They did the engineering in the building. By changing the construction, we created tenants, we created value. And it's one of the things we, we talk to our clients about. So this building though had to then be built for the exact same price that a, a standard concrete office building would be built for in a city fringe location. So often, look, there are other timber buildings in Australia and some of those are absolutely beautiful as well, but some of them are demonstration projects where there's been extra money. What's important about 25 King is that it, it was built for the exact same budget that you would build a regular concrete building. And so what it shows is this is not about spending more money to do something and to kind of virtue signal. And it's saying at least, so this building's 10 storeys, at least in that mid-rise, you can build and we should be building all our buildings out of timber. The taller you go, it becomes harder and harder to use timber. But as we go taller, we try to replace concrete with timber. Although you can end up with a concrete core and timber floors, you, and the taller you go, the harder it is to use natural materials. But we're, we're always trying. But in that mid-rise range, like for like, we should be building in timber. There's no excuse. Wow, you're very... And that's what it That's, that's, what a, that's it an underlined full stop statement there. Yep. There's no doubt in that at all. There isn't. Can you tell us more about engineered or cross-laminated timber and how it reduces carbon emissions? Because I can see you're clearly passionate about transforming people's minds to make them understand that using timber yes. to build is not only aesthetically pleasing, but it's clearly having impact. So how does it actually work to reduce carbon emissions? So clearly we're growing uh, forests to harvest that timber those forests are sequestering carbon 
into the timber. So we are, you're sequestering carbon out of the atmosphere. So it's, it's a highly sustainable product. Um, for people who don't understand what cross-laminated timber is, it's not solid core timber. It's a series of layers and each one is at 90 degrees. So they're thin layers and timber ha generally has strength in one direction or the other. And by cross-laminating the layers, you get something that's very strong and you're not having to find huge trees and cut down 100-year-old trees to get major beams. You can build them up. You're reinforcing it. You can still get large beams. The thing that's changed it, of course, there are older buildings. So a lot of the warehouses in Piermont, where we are, are timber, but they were um, cutting down old growth forests. These are made out of new growth for, uh, forests that are made for harvesting and built up. What's happened is construction has now been um, automated. So you have CNC routing machines that can cut this timber absolutely precisely. So you can build it up, cut it, and it comes to site as the exact piece. All the holes are drilled um, and it literally goes oh. together like a Meccano set. Um, and if you've ever seen a steel building go together where the beams all arrive and the bolts are in exactly the right place, it's very, very similar. And it goes together cleanly. There's no waste. So when, when you go to a concrete site, there's incredible amounts of waste. It's almost medieval building a, a concrete building. There's, there's water, there's waste, there's dirt, there's noise, there's people knocking down scaffolding. It's, it's not a pleasant environment. And you go to a timber building site, the whole noise level comes right down. It's, it's quiet. Um, everyone's behaviour, curiously, is much more respectful. Um, I'll just give you one simple thing. Concrete, concrete buildings have graffiti everywhere. You're probably aware of the sort of silly graffiti you get from builders. There is no graffiti on a timber building site. People respect um, the material. They do not draw things on it. And it's quiet, and so I think everyone else is respecting each other much more. It goes together very quickly and very quietly and very respectfully and without that waste. So it, it's literally something that transforms the industry and the builders and their attitudes. And I can imagine, I, look, I haven't ever worked all day on a building site, but that constant clanging and kind of, it, dr you would nuts. go home and be a, very stressed. Why is it that, for example, I live in Marrickville, uh, huge, huge development going on at the moment. It's being gentrified at a rapid rate. Yep. I don't see any buildings being built from timber. It's all concrete. What's holding the industry back if the benefit is so clear and the cost is equatable to building with timber? I think it's two things. It's awareness. Um, and I, I think there's not that general awareness yet. Um, and then there's a, there's a fear of doing something different. I think the industry is very geared up to do what it did last time and do it again and again and again. And when you try to do something different... Which is why we see these cookie-cutter buildings yes. that developers come in and build. And, and doing something different, interestingly, costs more only because the builder doesn't know how to do it and so they're going to price in risk. Once it becomes more normalised, the cost comes down. And so timber... Up until a few years ago, people were putting 25 to 30% additional cost on it. Now, the one we did, Lend-Lease, committed, and they were the builder and the developer. Um, they haven't 
ever told us what the final cost was, but they were very surprised at how quickly it went together um, and it cost a lot less than they'd originally thought. Now, I think, I think the industry is changing. I think there's much greater awareness. Mm. Um, you go back, well, you go back five or 10 years and there was still debates, even in parliament, of was climate change a thing? I think that scepticism, I think we've moved on from that debate um, and the science is proven. And so I think now solutions. the industries, yes, it's yeah. solutions. It's How also, do we get there? Just before we move on, can you, mm. in a nutshell, uh, go back to how it reduces carbon emissions? So the, the statistic that um, 25 King has is it reduced 74% of embodied carbon compared to a concrete building. Wow, that's um, remarkable. It's massive. And that's just in construction. The interesting thing then is that the timber goes on um, sequestering carbon from the atmosphere for about two years after construction. So it keeps absorbing that carbon and has another additional net benefit. The thing that interests me though is that we still talk about, well, it's 75% less. Now that's 75% less than current business as usual. I want to flip that on its head and say, well, actually that should be the norm. And if you want to build a, a concrete building, it will take four times as much carbon to build a normal building. It's crystal clear then. And at that point, you know, someone like Greta Thunberg would say, how dare you? How can you use four times as much embodied carbon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's painting a very clear picture. Since the completion of uh, 25 King, are you seeing greater usage of engineered timber in Australia and across the world? We're doing a lot more projects in timber. So we've just finished one which um, there was an existing, I think it's about six, seven-storey office building, and we added a hotel on the top. And all of that was built in CLT. This is in Australia, it's in Melbourne, it's um, in South Bank, and it's a, I think it's a 10-storey hotel on top of a six or seven-storey concrete office building. But because the timber's lighter, we didn't have to reinforce the existing structure, or the norm would have been to demolish that existing building and just build it all again from scratch. So firstly, saving the existing building, not demolishing and building again, and then building much more sustainably on top. Um, so where recycling the existing building stock is highly sustainable. And probably one of the most sustainable things we can do, to be honest, is not build, recycle existing buildings. So not kind of use new materials. But when we do, let's use the most sustainable building materials that we can. Um, that's an example of recycling. And then I think post 25 King, all the buildings we're doing, as I said before, is we're looking at areas where we can replace concrete with timber. Now, uh, in a lot of the buildings, say office buildings, we're trying to create breakout spaces that are naturally ventilated, have gardens or outdoor terraces. And we try to use those as full um, CLT timber buildings. So replace areas uh, with CLT. So people at least have a space to go that's connected to natural ventilation, connected to biophilia, connected to natural materials like timber. And it's just part of that replacing mm. and doing whatever we can. The question I have though is how do you retrofit but also maintain local character, particularly in a place like Melbourne, because Melbourne has retained some of its sort of, you know, traditional architecture, which is very beautiful. Yes. How do you retrofit but also sort of maintain that? So the vibe of the city, if you like. Whenever there's an existing building, we should be thinking, can we keep it? Can we refurbish it? It's far more sustainable to keep the existing building stock 
Can we add on top of it? That is a more sustainable solution to the future of the city than demolition. And I think we've just gone through a massive cycle if we take the last 70 odd years of we have demolished so much of our heritage and really we've got to stop. And even if it's not heritage, can we just use the existing structural frame? Um, so structure accounts for about 50% of embodied carbon. Even if we take facades off and really rebuild the building, can we keep what's there and so not use um, carbon unnecessarily and just recycle buildings, refurbish, recycle and reuse? Mm. Um, can we add on top of them in a sustainable way? And timber's a great solution because it's lightweight, so you don't need to reinforce the existing structure. Is that a trend you think you'll see emerging more and more? Absolutely. I think you'll see a lot of buildings being refurbished. There's old building stock that's coming up and people are looking at it and going, that, that's not a building of the future. I think rather than demolish and rebuild, we will see those buildings get recycled, adaptively reused. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful thought. It's so lovely to hear the sort of hopeful sentiment in your voice as you speak. You are the president of the Council on Tall Buildings and Urban Habitat. You're looking at building... Only president in Australia, just okay. yeah, that's, not of that's the whole still, That's still a big job. You're looking at building up rather than building out with urban sprawl. How can higher density living benefit communities in the climate? I'm interested in density, um, higher density, as a more sustainable option. So that can look like a city like Paris, which is a mid-rise city. It can look like a city like New York, which is a high-rise city. And to me, I think actually a vibrant city is probably a mix of the two. I think it's not without some buildings that are tall. And the advantage of being tall sometimes is that you can create beautiful open spaces on the ground. The problem with sprawl is it's, it's super low density. It means that people are car dependent, so you must use cars to go everywhere. It's pedestrian unfriendly, and cars are a high carbon form of transport. Um, low density doesn't work for public transport. Um, so you don't have public transport, so everyone is driving cars. They're not walking or cycling. So it's got health implications. And of course, it's just spreading and using up arable land um, and spreading roads and cars everywhere. So to me, the sprawl, suburban sprawl, is the coal of urbanism. It's wow. just this high, high carbon form of living. So I believe cities need to stop sprawling. And you, you go back to cities like Portland, Oregon, which um, 40 years ago put what's a red line around the outside and said, we don't grow anymore. Even London has a green belt all the way around the outside and you can grow up to there or they jump the green belt. Now, that's what we need to do. We've got to stop sprawling in Australian cities. We need to have what I'm going to call um, polycentric cities. So if you look at the Australian model, and Sydney's heading towards polycentricity, but if you look at post-World War II, Australian cities were monocentric. We had a CBD that was high-rise, and then we just went to one to two storeys forever and ever and ever. I think what we've got to do now is, and we're building it in city metro lines, we've got heavy rail lines, and where those occur around those stations, we need to build in higher densities. Not necessarily high-rise, but clusters of high density. That does not say there aren't any more suburbs. There's a lot of space between stations that is for low rise, but in, in 800 metres around a, a train station stop, so 10 minutes walking distance, we should have high density, mixed use centres 
connected to public transport, uh, where people can walk to work or walk to public transport. There should be schools there. There should be public open space in these nodes of density. So, Philip, what you've talked about there is, I suppose, some of the challenges that urban sprawl presents. But is high-density living the solution to slowing urban sprawl? So, when we say slow it, as I said, I'm, I'd, I would like to advocate for a, a red line that says no more. Don't build out. Start reflecting back in on where we're spending a lot of money on infrastructure and around that infrastructure we need higher density. Um, we also need more affordable housing. But I think we're also, um, if we look at the Australian building stock, the vast majority of, of it is single-family homes. And that doesn't represent our modern lifestyle. People need apartments. Perhaps certainly when you're young and working, you can probably live in an apartment. At a certain age, maybe if you're having children, you might need a backyard. But I think we need a lot more choice and the ability to live closer in communities that are walkable, um, have community facilities, shops, etc., where you can connect with other people. I do believe we still have an affordability crisis and for key workers, and, and that is a challenge. Particularly in Sydney. In Sydney, but across Australia, it's a challenge we need to meet. You can see I'm a passionate advocate of density, um, and what I'd like to see is um, that when we build this infrastructure and the state government's putting it in, I'd like to see the state government say, okay, if you're within an 800 metre radius of that, uh, we will give you extra density, but you give it back to us as affordable housing. Why not? Within 400 metres, you can get 20% extra density over what the original density was, or 800 metres, you get 10% extra density, and it's affordable. So you're actually, the government saying, I'll give it to you, but you give us the affordable housing we need. I suppose the, the proof is in the pudding, right? So are there Australian examples of these high density cities that you're describing, highly livable, connected communities in Australia? Um, look, I, I think Sydney's starting to develop as a polycentric city. So we do have clusters of high density. Um, and obviously we've got Sydney City, um, but you've got North Sydney, Chatswood, St Leonard's, and you know, Macquarie Park, you go on and on. I think the big challenge with, with a lot of those centres is they are um, what I'm going to call monofunctional. So they're zoned for commercial and they don't allow residential. And look, that's a, it's a very old planning idea. Um, it comes out of look, a group called CIAM. It's a, a group from mid 20th century European architects who promoted the functional zoning of cities. And we still have that functional zoning embedded in our zoning practices. And yet you look at all the great cities of the world and they're not monofunctional at all. You've got people living, you look at downtown Manhattan and you've got as many high-rise living apartments as commercial buildings, and that's what makes cities vibrant and livable. They're not just nine to five cities. They're people after work, dining, entertaining, going to bars. You need that mix of functions, and we still have restrictions. So I, what I find is we've got, we're starting to get density along rail lines, and it will evolve further as Metro comes on, um, but we need to have mixed-use cities where you can live and work. And that's a mind shift for Australian planners. Look, we aren't short on innovations. It's clear that you're, that's the world you're working in. You're working for the future. You're creating for the future and you're designing buildings for the future, which is really exciting. 
you know, there are many passionate people like yourself with these sort of holistic visions for the future of our cities. And we have made some good inroads. You've given us some great examples with the case studies we talked through today. But what is it that really needs to shift for livability, equity, you know, and sustainability to be prioritised, to be the first thing that people think of all the time? Look, I, I think we're, we've started to make that shift. And uh, I, as I said before, I think the debate of is climate change real has gone. I think we're now saying it, it's real. Um, even our, we've got rid of the politicians and the naysayers, and now the focus is how do we achieve, how do we get our cities back to net zero? And I think the next challenge is how do we bring along the community to accept change? How do we accept that um, higher density is part of what we need to do? And I think we've been, um, we haven't been great um, as architects and planners in bringing the community along. We tend to, you know, the first building that gets put up might, if it's an eight-storey building, but it's, and that whole area's going to be eight storeys eventually, but the person next door who's two storeys says, that's ridiculous. I think we need to be um, not only showing new buildings, but showing the vision in a planning sense that, just so you know, all of the buildings will eventually be eight storeys and there's mixed height, and we need to then assess new buildings against a future vision that needs to be sold on this is what we need to do to Australian cities to make them sustainable and so that we're not just sprawling on the outer edges, which is, as we've said, highly unsustainable. So I think it's about engaging the community. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today. Uh, join me in thanking Philip Vivian. To follow the program online, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, to visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition, or join us for a live recording, go to 100climateconversations.com.